This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone. This is The Law School Show. My name is Jake Clark, and we have Professor Natalie Shalafour here with us today to talk about the current carbon tax case that is in the process of being deliberated at the Supreme Court of Canada. I believe the um, court sub- submissions wrapped up just a couple of weeks ago at the time of this recording, which is October 6th. P- um, Professor Shalafour, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's been it's been an interesting bit to follow this, actually. It's a uh, this is kind of an area of interest for me. And uh, well, you know this because full disclosure, I worked on a, a fellowship over the summer that involved creating teaching materials for environmental law courses, partially under your supervision. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to call you in to, to talk about this because I know that you are something of, of an expert a lot in the regimes around a lot of these market-based mechanisms, especially pollution taxation. And I was just wondering if uh, you'd like to give us sort of a little bit of background on that as we're going in, like uh, what your experience has been with that field of study. Sure. Well, uh, truth be told, I've been working on environmental taxation or ecological fiscal reform, that concept, uh, for, for many years. But it was only, I guess, well, only, it was 12 years ago that I started to get fairly obsessed with the question of the division of powers over carbon pricing in Canada. So the use of fiscal measures to influence behavior is fascinating because if we want to nudge people in the direction of making better choices as consumers and businesses making better investments to get us towards a more sustainable future, well, we have to make it cost effective for them to do so. So we can use financial incentives, we can use you know, sticks as well. So taxes and charges to nudge behavior in the right direction. And carbon pricing, of course, is the example that we've all been become, I think, quite familiar with over the last few years because of what's happening in the courts. And I know we're going to be talking about that in this podcast. So it's, uh, it's an issue that I've been fascinated by, because the legal, the the legal side of it is, uh, it raises all kinds of novel questions, including the division of powers issue, which of course, was before the the Supreme Court. Excellent. And I just kind of want to follow through on this just sort of to give uh, our listeners some background to the antecedents uh, of this of this uh, case. So this began, as I'm given to understand, as three uh, appellate court level challenges. And all of these were dealing with division of powers to some extent. And some of them, one of them in, in Alberta was a resounding no on whether or not this is okay. And then I believe the other two in Ontario and Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Okay, I was going to say Manitoba. Uh, returned with a sort of equivocal yes. Could you kind of explain how that's uh, led up to this? Like what that kind of means? Sure. So the background is that the federal government in 2018 enacted what some people call a carbon tax, a national carbon tax. It's more accurately called a, a national carbon, let's just say price to keep it general. So At that time, there was greenhouse gas emissions pricing in several of the provinces, including the four biggest provinces. So the federal government enacted a law called the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act. We'll call it GEPA for short. It enacted this law to basically nationalize carbon pricing to make sure that every jurisdiction across Canada had a a minimum level of carbon pricing. 
And the reason they did that is because in order to meet our Paris targets of greenhouse gas emissions reductions for climate change, we need to make sure that there is a national level of carbon pricing, which again, coming back to the earlier comment, it nudges behavior in the right direction. Consumer and producer behavior, we all move towards less greenhouse gas intensive activities when there's a price associated with carbon. So the federal government enacted this law, but as you noted, Almost immediately, Saskatchewan challenged the constitutionality of that law, basically saying that's not in the federal government's jurisdiction to enact this provincial turf. And then shortly thereafter, there was a change of government in Ontario. And when Premier Ford was elected, he he got rid of Ontario's cap and trade program, which would have qualified under the federal law, but uh, and then also challenged the constitutionality. And as you mentioned, Alberta did it as well. And I need to just take one step back for a moment to explain the way the federal law works is that it's a backstop. So it's intended to say there has to be a minimum standard of carbon pricing across the country, but it leaves the provinces the flexibility to enact their own system. Because as I said, when the law came in, 80% of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada were already subject to a price. BC has a carbon tax. Alberta had a kind of a carbon levy in place. And Ontario and Quebec both had a cap and trade program. And so it was a, a law that basically said, you need provinces to do this. And if you don't, we'll step in with a backstop and do it for you. Or you can even request, provinces can request or territories can request the federal government to implement the system if they don't want to go to the trouble. So that's the way the law worked. But then it was challenged on the, on the basis of constitutionality, specifically division of powers by those three provinces. And as you rightly noted, Jake, in Ontario and Saskatchewan, that challenge, interestingly, the two courts of appeals, this was a reference question posed to those courts, they answered the question as follows. They said, GIPA is constitutional. It is within the federal government's authority to enact. So it's intravirus. In contrast, the Alberta Court of Appeal, which was the third decision to come out, struck the law down, or actually I shouldn't say struck the law down, basically declared it to be unconstitutional or ultra-virus, because it's a reference question posed to the court. So they said, no, this is not constitutional. So of course, you have a difference of opinion in the three jurisdictions, and there were also interveners, which we can talk about after if you'd like, but then it all went up to the Supreme Court. The hearing was heard September 22nd and 23rd, and arguments were made by both sides about whether this law is indeed constitutional. And of course, the Supreme Court's going to have the final word, and we'll likely hear in a few months. Before we talk about the interveners, I, I would like to sort of get uh, your impression, just a sort of thumbnail sketch of the principal arguments that were put before the Supreme Court and how, that's, how that sort of synthesized the different references, how it addressed them, things like that. Sure. Well, it's it's quite interesting because while the three provinces were arguing that Parliament doesn't have jurisdiction or to enact the carbon price, they actually, in the Supreme Court and in their arguments, didn't really say that Parliament doesn't have any jurisdiction. It was taking issue with the use of POG, the Peace Order and Good Government provision of the Constitution and the National Concern Doctrine. So what they were saying is that Parliament should not have the power under POG to implement this act. So they actually conceded in, in different ways that Parliament probably would have the jurisdiction to enact a pure tax in the constitutional sense of a tax and that they could have used their criminal law power to enact, you know, greenhouse gas emissions regulations. What they took issue with was this use of POG. And there's a real 
resistance from provinces to having federal legislation upheld under POG because there's a fear that it's going to upset the balance of powers and give too much power at the federal level. So what the federal government was saying is this is an example of POG where the national concern doctrine of POG should apply because their you know argument in a nutshell is that greenhouse gases are a you know, they're the quintessential global pollutant. The impact is at the level of the atmosphere. And so this is a national concern. It's the kind of issue where you need a national response, because if one province fails to play ball and doesn't reduce their emissions accordingly, that can have implications for other provinces. And it also obviously has implications for the national government's ability to meet its international targets. So that is the the, the crux of the federal argument, that this does fit in to the national concern of POG because of this, the, the extra provincial impacts of GHGs. And I can get into, if you'd like later, you know, sort of the Crown-Zellerbach test. Those of you who have taken division of powers will know Crown-Zellerbach established the test for when a national concern, um, but I'll wait in case you don't want to get to that level of detail. For, for the uh, for the environmental law students who might be listening, it's, you're going to want to remember those words. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and I mean, it's fascinating because the Supreme Court was applying this test that we study in con law and, you know, really talking about how the, the test actually applies to this scenario. So I'm happy to go through it if you like. It's actually a really simple test because the test just says, is there a matter here that's either national because it's new or it, it may have been a local issue, but it's taken on national dimensions? And pretty hard to argue that greenhouse gas emissions are not either a new subject that wasn't known in 1867 or that it has taken on national dimensions given the problem of climate change, which is a global challenge. That's the first part of the test. The second part of the test is whether the matter is, and you'll remember the words perhaps from Crown Zellerbach, 1988 decision of the Supreme Court, is the matter at issue here, is it single, distinct, and indivisible? And those words are really just trying to say, is this something that we can actually delineate? Can we, can we can we identify it as something that's uniquely federal and it's not just an aggregate of provincial issues? And the, so the argument the federal government made here was that, sure, greenhouse gas emissions are measurable, they're identifiable, we can name them. They're not some amorphous concept that we can't identify or measure. They are something that in their the argument they put forward was single, distinct, and indivisible. And one of the ways that the courts can decide if something meets this single, distinct, and indivisibility part of the test is they, they ask the question of provincial inability. That's part of the Crown-Zellerbach language. If one province failed to take action on the matter, could that impact another province or the national government, for instance? And the answer that the government of Canada was putting forward at the Supreme Court was sure, yes, of course, because if if let's say that British Columbia has its carbon tax and is doing its part to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, if Alberta next door, if their emissions are rising and we want to meet a certain level of emissions reductions across the country, how do we do that? It puts more pressure on other provinces to reduce their emissions even more in order to make up for extra emissions in another jurisdiction. So that's the provincial inability test in a nutshell. And then the last part of the Crown-Zellerbach test is whether there is a scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction that's reconcilable with the balance of powers. So the idea being that if we give too much power to the federal government, of course, it's going to skew our division of powers too much in favor of the central government. So the scale of impact is a way for the courts to say, if we give the federal government jurisdiction and we recognize that under POG, what will that do? 
to provincial jurisdiction over related matters. And so here the government really pointed to the fact that this law was designed as a backstop. It was designed only to apply if provinces don't take action themselves. It was uh, the federal government pointed out that all the revenues that the federal government would raise if they did need to apply the backstop would go back to the province in which it was raised from. So they really emphasize the fact that this law was designed in a way that's quite minimally intrusive so that it's not having too great a scale of impact. And they also emphasized the double aspect doctrine. Again, environmental law and constitutional law students, you might have heard about this doctrine. The idea being that there can be laws at the provincial and the federal level that are dealing with different aspects of the problem. So that was in a nutshell, the or perhaps a, a bit of an elaborate nutshell, the federal arguments. And the provinces, on the other hand, were saying, yes, but Greenhouse gases are produced by everything. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And they're produced largely by sources in the provinces. So their argument, and they made it very forcefully, was that provinces have jurisdiction to regulate emissions under provincial powers such as property and civil rights. Alberta also raised a Section 92A, the Natural Resources Amendment of the Constitution, to say, no, this is really within provincial jurisdiction. And there were really two key points to their arguments. The first one, if you'll remember again from constitutional law, one of the first things the courts have to do in answering this question and applying the Crown-Zellerbach test is figuring out what is this law really about? What's its quote-unquote pith and substance, its dominant purpose? And the provinces were saying its pith and substance is regulating all greenhouse gas emissions. So they said it's such a broad purpose that if we give the federal government authority to enact a law over GHG emissions, it's going to just be way too broad. And the second key point of their argument, which they really emphasized, was that they were saying it's going to take over provincial jurisdiction because it's going to displace provincial jurisdiction. So the provinces were saying, if you uphold this under POG, you're taking something away from the provinces because they said there's no space for a double aspect doctrine here. They were arguing more in line with the watertight compartment approach of the Constitution's interpretation in the past, where these are enclaves. And if the federal government gets jurisdiction over greenhouse gas emissions, as they said, this was how the law was characterized, that would take that away from the provinces. So really at the Supreme Court, just to sum it up, the key issues here were, what is the pith and substance of this legislation? Is it all regulation of greenhouse gas emissions, like the provinces argued? Or, as the federal government argued, is it more establishing minimum standards for greenhouse gas emissions reductions? That's how the Ontario Court of Appeal characterized the pith and substance. And the Saskatchewan Court did something similar with just a slight difference. They specified carbon pricing. And so that's one of the key things that the Supreme Court will have to decide. What is really the pith and substance? And the second one, also really important, is, is there space for overlap here? And I think it would be really surprising if the court said there wasn't space for overlap given jurisprudence over the last 20 years or so in the court. Um, As long as they're legislating on different aspects of the problem, there should be space for provincial and federal laws to apply, not, not concurrent jurisdiction, but concurrent operation of laws in the Federation. So I'll stop there and and see if you have further questions. But basically, that is what the core tension was at the Supreme Court between the two sets of arguments. I think that's a very good description. That's excellent. I I feel very illuminated right now. (laughs) That's good. 
I, I do kind of want to ask you about your personal experience because you uh, intervened in this case as well. So you've seen this firsthand. I just kind of want to know if you can tell our listeners on whose behalf you were intervening and sort of what the, the general thrust of that was. Of course. So I I represented interveners, just so that full disclosure, at the Ontario and Saskatchewan Courts of Appeal. I represented with Professor LG the Ecofiscal Commission in Saskatchewan. In Ontario, I represented with Westaway Law, and one of our former students was involved in working on that case, Tyler Paquette. I worked with them on representing uh, an intervener, the United Chiefs and Councils of the Minidu Nissing. In at the Supreme Court, I uh, again collaborated with Anne Levesque, Professor. Anne Levesque for uh, my co-counsel in representing uh, the National Association of Women in the Law and Friends of the Earth. And the argument that we raised there was really that we should be interpreting the division of powers through the lens of substantive equality. And our core argument was that when you look at the division of powers and you're applying Crown Zeller back and you're looking at jurisdiction, that you have to step back and make sure that you're interpreting that division of powers in light of its implications for equality. So if you look at, you know, for instance, the scale of impact part of the test in Crown-Zellerbach, well, when you're weighing the potential intrusion on provincial jurisdiction, if you uphold this under POG, I mean, we said there's not going to be much intrusion anyway because there's a double aspect and because of the narrow pith and substance. But we said, even if there was some intrusion, we have to weigh that against the implications that climate change is going to have for communities that have faced systemic discrimination in the past, including women and girls, but also including all kinds of populations that have been subject to discrimination. So our argument there was that we we need to interpret the division of powers in a way that is compliant with the charter as well. And there were other groups arguing that it needs to also be compliant with Section 35 of the Constitution, so recognizing Indigenous rights as well. So there was a real, among the interveners, complementary arguments being made to encourage the court to interpret the Crown-Zellerbach test and the division of powers issues against the backdrop of broader constitutional values. And you'd say that uh, these arguments like within the different levels of court were generally well received? Well, you know, you get five minutes as an intervener, and of course you get to submit a factum, you know, of 10 pages or so. So you don't have a lot of space to contribute. But I think if you look at the number of interveners and the number of arguments made, you saw really similar themes emerging. And the one I've just mentioned about the Constitution being, you know, interpreted holistically, that was a really core, strong theme that came out from several interveners representing Indigenous groups, including the Assembly of First Nations, including the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. You know, a a really powerful signal being sent here was that Indigenous groups, several of them, were supporting the federal position. So they were coming to court to support federal legislation on climate change because of how seriously their rights are going to be impacted by climate change. That in itself is really is really notable. And the other interveners, there were some that also raised the national emergency arguments and other prevent uh, other potential powers under which the legislation could be upheld. So that's interesting too, because the court might could say, well, you know what? We're concerned about national concern doctrine, but we're going to look at other means of justifying this law, including potentially characterizing it as a national emergency. And the David Suzuki Foundation and us as well, the National Association of Women in the Law and Friends of the Earth made that argument that this is a national emergency. Do you think that there's a general, this is more a question about 
like your your view of the uh, of a legislative trend to well to an extent of, of the executive too but like do you think there is the will to see this measures through like that would create a more uh, holistic regime to reconcile ourselves with these uh, cli- these goals around climate change well i think if I get your question, what we're, you know, if this, if this, I could have worded that a little more succinctly. Yes, <laughs> that's okay. There's so much. There's so many moving parts, right? This is a really complex case. Although when you when you boil it down to the issues that ended up before the Supreme Court, they were really about interpreting the National Concern Doctrine of POG and looking at this legislation in particular. But set against the backdrop, I think what your question is raising is, and and this actually a lot of interveners said this: if this law is not upheld, we are going going to be really, really set back in our ability to meet our Paris targets. This law already is insufficient. You know, it's only going to get us partway to our target. There's a lot of other complementary measures at both the provincial and federal level that need to be implemented as well for us to get to our Paris target. And our Paris target itself is also insufficient, right? It's not, we're not doing enough already. And we have a perfect track record in Canada of failing to meet our national targets. So we internationally, we commit under Kyoto, under, you know, other other steps in the process of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, we've set several targets and we have failed to meet them every time. So this time we actually, you know, this administration federally really made climate change a priority. Some people, the target wasn't ambitious enough, but at least they had a target. They, you know, developed the Pan-Canadian Framework. They implemented this law. There really was an effort to do what we could to at least get us on track and improve from our prior track record to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And it gets challenged constitutionally. So if we don't uphold this law, you know, sure, Parliament can go back to the drawing board. It can reenact legislation under the criminal law power. It could impose a more traditional revenue-raising tax that has a, you know, an environmental component as well. So they could implement the carbon tax as a pure tax where they just take the revenue federally and don't leave provinces any flexibility. They could do that, but then we will have been delayed yet another, what, two, three years potentially. So the implications of this decision are really important. Just just kind of follow up, maybe a bit of a clarification of my question, considering sort of the content of like the throne speech, which dealt a great deal with this sort of ambition towards a green recovery. Are there any sort of hopes, concerns, or predictions you might have about how this will develop in the next few years? Well, my hope, of course, is that this law will be upheld. I think legally it's the right decision. I've been writing about this since 2008, and my view, of course, there's people who disagree, but my view is that this law really can be justified constitutionally under a standard interpretation of the jurisprudence as it stands. So hopefully the Supreme Court will uphold it. The next step then will be to, you know, make sure that as we are, you know, we've got this disruption with COVID, and of course, the throne speech recognize that we have an opportunity now to kind of rejig things and focus on transitioning our economy, decarbonizing our economy, and making sure we're doing so in a way that also protects workers' rights, transitions, health, all of those important values that they can come together. So I think I think we're getting the right signals and the right intentions. The critical thing is just to, you know, get on with doing it because there's so much, unfortunately, so much interprovincial squabbling and differences of opinion that we are hamstrung in our abilities to see these things through. So my hope is that we can, if this decision can be, you know, if it's upheld by the Supreme Court, I think the provinces will have to accept this measure is going to stay. And then it'll be a question of whether the federal government 
how fast they're going to ramp up the carbon price and what else they're going to do at a complementary level on innovation spending, on just transitions for workers, etc. to make sure. And on adaptation, we haven't even talked about that, but boy, we have a lot to do on climate adaptation to mitigate the risks and to make sure that we are safeguarding the populations, especially Indigenous communities that are going to be so hard hit by climate change, uh, no matter what happens that, you know, we've already locked in a fair bit of change. So those communities are going to need to be very well, you know, helped and supported to deal with the impacts that are coming. Water security, tree planting, that kind of thing. <laughs> and more yeah. infrastructure. There's obviously been a lot of emphasis on infrastructure spending in the throne speech, and that's great. But, you know, it's, it's a beginning and there's much, much more to be done. Well, that's the future, isn't it? Whether that's uh, that's the bed where we've got to lie in. Yes. Now, if uh, anybody's heard that and feels sort of galvanized to learn more about it or to sort of, if we want to, for example, read more of your excellent articles on this, where can we find those? And what would be your advice to law students seeking to get some practical skin in the game as we um, careen into the future? Oh, that's such a fun question. So I like these forward-looking questions because I'm a, I'm a half-glass-full person. So as much as climate change is, is frightening and we have a lot of work to do, I'm also so confident in the capacity of, of human society to deal with this if we can just get our, our focus right. And so for law students, if you're interested, I've, I have written an awful lot about this. I'm certainly, uh, most of my papers are posted on the SSRN on a number of other websites as well, but you're also welcome to contact me if you need help finding them. But in terms of students. We had so many students helping the various faculty members that were involved in this case. I know several research assistants and students already engaged on this. And if you are still interested in this issue, I would really encourage you to take a class or two, even if you're not super interested in climate change or environmental law for your career, take a class or two because these issues are here to stay. And I am fairly confident that anybody practicing law uh, in any kind of domain is going to be facing climate change issues and environmental issues in their practice, whether you're a corporate lawyer, whether you're working on trade issues, whether you're working on tax, whether you're working on torts, whatever your practice is, I'm pretty certain you're going to encounter climate change issues. And if you do want to work on it as part of your career, all the better, because we sure need capacity on this issue. It's rapidly evolving and there's so much to keep up on. So definitely get in touch with me if you're interested. There's lots of different ways to engage and lots of activity at the U of O. We've got amazing resources with Eco Justice, with the Smart Prosperity Institute, with several of us working both on teaching and researching, but also engaged in policy. And so we love to have students involved in this work. Yeah. Well, if, if, uh, if this pans out the way it does and it does become a federal power, Ottawa will be quite the destination for this. That's true. Although that's not going to undermine what the provinces are doing. My view has always been that the provinces have a lot of space here to continue doing their important work too. It's been a little cheeky on that one. (laughs) All right. That sounds excellent. Professor Shalafour, thank you very much for dropping by. We're so glad to have heard about it. I I, I personally have learned a great deal. I've been studying this for a few months, so this is an excellent sign. And we will be back momentarily with the second half of this segment, where we continue to unpack these issues. Professor Shalafort, have a wonderful day. You too. And to our listeners, thanks for dropping in. Hello again, everyone. This is once again, Jake Clark, and you are still listening to The Law School Show. We are here joined by another esteemed member of our law faculty, that is Professor Jeremy DeBeer, who was also an interviewer in the recent carbon tax reference 
at the Supreme Court of Canada. Professor DeBeer, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jake. This is part two of our series where we're talking in some detail about the recent procedures, the recent, the recent reference to which you're a part. You've done a lot of work in the law of technology and law of development, and you've been before the Supreme Court in that capacity before. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your background and your particular legal discipline. Well, I am a law and technology lawyer and legal academic, and that's primarily what I do research on. My interest in this case is rooted in the international legal dimensions, and in particular, Canada's ability to fulfill its international commitments under the Paris Agreement, the latest agreement that's part of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And so from my perspective, if Canada was not able to implement the Paris Agreement and do its part to respond to the global existential threat of climate change, we would have similar problems in many other areas, including the implementation of international trade agreements. So I was really fortunate to get involved in this case, bringing some expertise on international trade law and international trade agreements into the area of the environment and environmental protection and environmental treaties. Now, I'm very interested in this designation as a global systemic threat, which I would agree with. I think the science bears that out, especially with the IPCC's rulings. The recent the 2018 IPCC report was obviously a bit of a bombshell in that respect, I think, for a lot of people, myself included. I am wondering if you could expand a bit on that international perspective, because it is very difficult for us to comprehend, and especially what that kind of means with different legal regimes and like the different factors put into play under the framework proposed by this UN resolution. Sure, Jake. I think to understand this, you have to understand a little bit more about where the client in this case was coming from. So I was acting for the Smart Prosperity Institute. Smart Prosperity, based at the University of Ottawa, is a, th a think tank that does research at the intersection of environmental and economic policies. And carbon pricing is a key economic and environmental policy that can drive Canada and the world toward a, a cleaner environment by reducing greenhouse gas emissions by putting a price on them. And Smart Prosperity asked me to support their submissions to the Supreme Court to help persuade the court that the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, the GGPPA, is constitutional. And Smart Prosperity's primary arguments were about the pith and substance of the legislation. What is the legislation doing? And how does this legislation fit with 40 or 50 years of environmental regulation concurrently at the federal and provincial levels in Canada? So they were making that argument primarily. And I was asked to put this in an international context, whereas Smart Prosperity's main submissions were about the federal provincial relationships. I was bringing to the court the perspective of Canada's duty to implement commitments to the world. And so in that context, the main argument was that Canada has to be able to act to combat an existential threat to humanity. And there are really two reasons why Canada has to have that constitutional power. One is to deal with the problem itself, which is transboundary movements of greenhouse gas emissions that cross not just provincial, but, but national borders as well. And two, because Canada has to have the constitutional ability to engage in global affairs. And so 
Canada has to be able to make reciprocal commitments to the rest of the world to reduce national contributions to greenhouse gas emissions because it's the only way to deal with what is a, a, a collective action problem. Everybody in the world has to get on board. And so for those two reasons, because of the transboundary nature of the threat and the need for Canada to coordinate with the rest of the world to address it, we submitted that the Constitution has to be interpreted to provide Parliament this power. So when we talk about transboundary movements, I'd like to go in on that a little bit, because that is, as you said, by nature, it's a national and then international interest. As a person uh, well steeped in, in international law, as well as law concerning the uh, activities and development of nations that do not necessarily have this representation and which stand to be pretty severely affected by climate change. Is there any sort of international framework for, for liability in that respect? Do you see the development of that sort of, I keep saying regime, but that sort of accountability in the future? Well, there are lots of examples of global treaties addressing the environment, not all of which I would say that parliament must have the power to implement. Some of these international treaties might be within provincial jurisdiction, but many are really matters of global concern. There are international treaties on liability and redress for the transboundary movements of living modified organisms, for example. If living modified organisms cross boundaries, there's a protocol called the Cartagena Protocol that deals with that. So I think we, we could get some insight on whether Canada has the power to implement the Paris Agreement or to achieve its nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement. From, from some other provisions or some other conventions, I should say. But none of the other international conventions deal with a problem as wicked as climate change. And so this, this topic and this agreement, the Paris Agreement under the UNFCCC, if Canada can't implement this agreement, it's unimaginable what, what agreement could be implemented. There is no better example of a truly global problem requiring a truly global solution than this one. As someone who's made this submission to the highest court in the land and someone who studies this, do you think there is uh, the will and the capacity to make those changes in the required time? I'm sorry, changes to what, Jake? Technological legal advancement to essentially curb or ameliorate the effects of climate change. Yeah, I mean, the, this is an urgent issue. This is an absolutely urgent issue. I, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, whether it's too late or not too late. But I do know, as a citizen, I'm not willing to uh, wait any longer. I'm not willing to give up. The, the, but the real issue is that Canada, the real legal issue is that Canada has taken a step a necessary step, but not a sufficient one, a necessary step to price greenhouse gas emissions and thereby reduce them. And that is an absolutely necessary measure if we're to have any hope of keeping the global average temperature rise to within the limits that, that scientists tell us are necessary. And so the Supreme Court will hopefully see that and uphold the legislation. But I think the, from the Supreme Court's point of view, it, this, well, with the exception of, of maybe a, a couple of judges in the Supreme Court and, and the provincial appellate courts, this really isn't a political issue. It's a legal issue. And wh whether, whether it's necessary or desirable to combat climate change, I suspect the Supreme Court's decision is going to be guided by constitutional law as opposed to climate policy. And I, I would like to 
sort of go into that a little bit. This is a bit, might be a perhaps a little tangential, but I'd like to see your opinion on it. Do you think that there is a, the potential to acknowledge this sort of environmental stewardship uh, requirement in an, in our law, or to um, acknowledge a responsibility to that sort of very long term and in the present very abstract commitment? Well, I think you've heard from Professor Shalafor, one of Canada's leading experts on this topic, how there's a long history of cooperative uh, environmental regulation at federal and provincial levels. And the constitutional framework exists and allows for that, most notably through the precedent set by Crown Zellerbach as to the peace, order and good government power under Section 91. So I think that the tools do exist. The question is how they can be adapted to or not, not adapted, actually how they can be used, because I don't think they need to be adapted, but how they can be used by the federal government to deal with this particular problem. And and I believe that they can be. That's a, that's a good thing to hear. That, that's certainly a thing to hope for. I, I would like to touch a bit on um, your work in, in law uh, that concerns uh, developing nations, because that is obviously one concern often expressed is that these uh, restrictions will adversely impact the economies of developed nations. On the other hand, it's often proposed that developed nations have the flexibility to accommodate these advancements or, or uh, these requirements more so than nations that have a more heavily developed or heavily commoditized energy infrastructure. I'd just like to know your view on that and then and how that may uh, play out. Well, I think we're in, in this area, we're moving away from the, the references to the Supreme Court and the issue of the constitutionality of carbon pricing. And we're getting into the question of global responses to climate change more generally. And I have done a fair bit of work on this. The big question is, where are developing countries going to get the technology to reduce carbon emissions? And the answer is they're going to get the technology to reduce carbon emissions primarily from developed countries. And when developing countries were negotiating as part of Kyoto, as part of Copenhagen, as, and as part of Paris, we saw a great deal of concern from developing countries that they would only be able to meet their carbon reduction targets using technology from developed countries. And the problem is that many of the most effective technologies are protected by intellectual property rights and therefore more costly than older, dirtier technologies. So the complaint from developing countries was that developed countries were essentially saying, reduce your carbon emissions and buy our technology to make that happen. And developing countries said, it's not fair to require us to reduce our carbon emissions to solve a problem that you caused by using your technologies. And so this intersection of climate policy and technology policy has created a lot of tension at the international level. And there have been discussions at the World Trade Organization and in the context of the UNFCCC about how to reconcile those, those issues involving environmental policy and science and technology policy. That, that's an issue that has not been resolved yet. We continue to work on that. So to kind of to reconcile this kind of the, this big picture tangent I might have led us on with yeah, the appearance at the, the reference currently being put before the Supreme Court and the uh, organization which you've represented and obviously the interest of 
the nation as a whole. How do you suppose this might fit in into the evolution of our particular action in this regard might fit in into this development towards international, I I don't necessarily want to say amelioration, but address to this very pressing and obviously global issue. Well, to bring this back to the constitutional question facing the Supreme Court of Canada, the basic issue is, can Canada implement its international obligations under the Paris Agreement? And we said yes, not only because there's an international treaty, but because there's an international treaty on a truly transboundary problem. And the the court we expected to be somewhat hostile to this argument that the international treaty can be relevant to Canada's constitutional powers. And that goes back to a case called labor conventions from the 1930s. Labor conventions for constitutional law nerds was the case where the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council said that Canada's ship of state might sail in international waters, but retains its watertight compartments. This was before the living tree metaphor had been uh, widely embraced by by the Supreme Court of Canada and most constitutional law scholars. And so the idea was that Canada could not, simply by negotiating international agreements, just change the division of powers and thereby usurp provincial jurisdiction. So in the example of labor conventions, the International Labor Organization had a number of treaties on things like working hours, weekly rest, and minimum wages, issues that are clearly in provincial jurisdiction, and held that the federal government can't acquire jurisdiction over labor standards simply by signing international treaties. By contrast, and this is important, by contrast, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council has held that the federal government does have the power to implement treaties in areas like aeronautics, and transboundary radio broadcasting. Because in those areas, those topics are not squarely within provincial jurisdiction and they are truly transboundary problems. You cannot have a fragmented regulatory scheme over uh, the rules of aviation or the standards for radio broadcasting or the entire system would fall apart. And our submission for the Smart Prosperity Institute was that an international agreement to reduce GHG emissions to combat an existential threat to humanity was much more like aeronautics or radio broadcasting than minimum wages. And so for for those reasons, our submission was that Canada as a nation does have the power to implement this kind of treaty under its power to make laws for the peace order and good government of Canada. You're saying that climate change, like talk radio, may destroy society. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying that uh, that the that the impacts of both climate change and talk radio are transboundary. And just to sort of close us out here, Professor Debir, if anybody heard this and thought they'd like to know more or would like to get involved, maybe maybe learn more about the Smart Prosperity Institute, what they do, or learn more about the uh, areas of development law that you yourself are expert in. How can they do that? How can they learn more? How can they get involved? Well, I would uh, encourage everybody to check out the website of the Smart Prosperity Institute. You can find that very easily by Googling the Smart Prosperity Institute. And from there, you'll be able to find links to um, all kinds of issues around climate policy, the intersection of the environment and the economy, and the importance of clean technology innovation. Absolutely. All right there, Professor Debeer. It was lovely to have you on. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity, Jake. I really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. 
I've been Jake Clark, and this has been The Law School Show. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.